Welcome to the Amazing Applications Podcast. This is the show for Microsoft Power Platform and Dynamics 365 application creators who want to build amazing applications that everyone will love. Hi everyone, I'm Neil Benson, your host for the Amazing Applications Podcast. My goal in this show is to help you slash your project budgets, reduce your delivery timelines, mitigate technical risks, and create amazing, agile Microsoft Dynamics 365 and Power Platform applications. Welcome to another episode of the show. You'll find show notes for this episode at customary.com slash 025. My guest in this episode is Haniel Kroitoru. Haniel is an Associate Director at Protivity. He lives in Toronto, in Canada, and he's been a Business Applications MVP since 2017. Haniel shares a story about one of his Power Platform projects for a Protivity not-for-profit client and shares the lessons learned about multi-language deployments, implementation approach, executive sponsorship, and change in user adoption. But just before we get into the interview with Haniel, I wanted to give a shout out to Pam Manel. Pam is a customer engagement training consultant at CRM365 Solutions from Devon in the UK. Pam recently took my online Scrum for Microsoft Business Applications training course and went on to achieve her professional Scrum Master Level 1 certification with Scrum.org. Well done, Pam. You'll find show notes for this episode at customary.com slash 025. Let's meet Haniel. Okay, Haniel, welcome to the Amazing Applications Show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Neil. Glad to be here. I'd love to have you on the show sharing your experience with the Power Platform and Dynamics 365. And I believe you've got a background in SharePoint, which is exciting as well. But just so our audience can get to know you a little bit better, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Ah, breakfast. Yeah, so typically I start my day with a cappuccino. It's an old uh, old tradition. I've had a machine that I got about 13 years ago from a wedding, and it's been serving myself and my wife pretty well since then. Uh, and I think almost no single day goes by without uh, without starting the day with a nice cappuccino. Good. I'm a flat white kind of guy, so it's a little bit less foam than cappuccino. But yeah, for first thing in the morning, got to wake up and turn on the coffee machine. For sure. And tell us about your first job. What was your first job after school? First job. So very, very far removed from anything Microsoft or SharePoint. Uh, so I actually started my career after I did a master's degree in computer-assisted surgery, which is really a field where you apply computer science and uh, uh, robotics and electronics to solve uh, medical and surgical problems. Um, and so after I finished a master's degree in that field, I was working for a company here in, uh, in Toronto, Canada, uh, where we were developing uh, software and hardware for image-guided surgery. So if you can imagine doing uh, surgery through a, uh, through a camera where you can superimpose um, your, your instruments on top of an X-ray or a CT scan and look inside the body without actually having to cut the body open. 
Um, so augmented reality is what it's called today. And 20 or so years ago when I was doing it, the term augmented reality didn't actually exist yet. So wow, very cool. But that was, yeah, that was my first real job. And I saw that you've got several patents listed against your name as well. That's an amazing achievement. Yeah. So through, through the, the tenure of about 10 years, developed uh, some uh, new, new approaches to actually doing surgery for mainly for orthopedics, which was my area of expertise. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so being able to achieve submillimeter accuracy on, on hip and knee replacements was something that was quite, uh, quite novel at the time. Oh, amazing. And tell us about your current job. Uh, so right now I'm an associate director working at Protivity, which is a, uh, a global consulting firm. Um, servicing 25 uh, countries. We have over 70 different offices all across the globe. Uh, we do consulting in a number of areas. Uh, technology consulting is actually one of the smaller ones. We do a lot of work in internal audit, financial uh, accounting, security and compliance, uh, risk assessment, uh, a lot of different areas in, in, in risk and finance. Okay, great stuff. I know you wanted to come onto the show to talk about one of the projects that you've deployed recently, and that was the United Church. Can you tell us about that organization? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've been working with them for, for a number of years now. Um, and one of the areas I really like is, uh, and you mentioned, I started in SharePoint, but over the last few years, I've been focusing very heavily in the Power Platform and automation and simplification of processes is something that is very very near and dear to my heart. Um, I always believe that, uh, you know, you should automate everything in life or as much as you can within reason. Um, and so when we were working with the United Church, a lot of the, um, the processes at the time were, uh, manual and paper driven and they were going through a digital transformation whereby they were moving a lot of, uh, um, documents and even data that was stored on on physical formats into uh, the cloud. So combination of SharePoint online, Dynamics, uh, and we took the opportunity at the same time to also automate a lot of their processes through online forms and workflows. Okay. And what kind of size is the United Church in terms of number of users, I guess? But that's one, one way of measuring the size of a project or the size of an organization. Um, so I believe there's about, uh, in the office, the, the core office, there were about 150 to 200 people, but then wow. the end users who are really, uh, ministers and members at all the different, uh, locations, all the different churches and communities of faith, I believe you're looking at upwards of 8,000 people in Canada. Okay. Wow. It's a big organization then. Yeah. So they had some pretty old paper forms, I guess, collecting information about the congregation and uh, those types of things, digitizing all of that. So was the, the goal of the project was then to streamline the organization and make things more efficient? Was it a cost-saving kind of project? Uh, it was, yeah, it was a matter of cost-saving. It was a matter of um, just streamlining how they how they do things, also uh, reducing the amount of errors, and and really trying to to sometimes reach out to some of these these communities of faith that are very remote and they do something by paper by the time that it makes it into the main office it might take some time it can get lost so doing it online um, is is a lot faster and less error prone. 
What, what led them to choose the Microsoft platform? Were you part of that selection process as well, or they had they made that choice by the time you came in to deliver the services? Um, the choice was made. They they were on on Microsoft before, so they they've been using uh, Dynamics on prem, and they were using some some other uh, Microsoft products. But the, the actual decision to move to to the Microsoft cloud that was something that was uh, the decision was made before I joined. And thinking about the people that were involved, what kind of size of team did you have on your side, on their side? What kind of roles did people have, and which which of those do you think were the critical ones for the success of the project? Um, so I think our team was was made up of about uh, six to eight people, varying from the, the the PM and the business analyst to having technical t- technical uh, people involved in the configuration of the solution, uh, building custom solutions, doing testing and validation, um, doing the business process development. So that's kind of the, uh, from our, our side, that was the team size. Uh, from the client side, it, it varied because depending on certain areas that we were automating or, or working on, we would have members of the team anywhere from, let's say, two to five or six per department join in and be involved in all the discussions, uh, uh, the, you know, the approach we wanted to take, and then later on being involved in validating the solution and making sure that everything works as they're expecting it to. Okay. And what, what kind of project sponsorship did you get on the client side? Was there a strong project sponsor in place? Yes. Yeah. We had uh, upper management involved in, uh, in the project from the beginning. And do you think that um, that's a critical thing, or or could you have delivered it with without their support? You know, just with some middle managers providing the requirements. Um, I believe that, uh, especially when you're going through such a big transformation, uh, which requires a lot of change management and training, and uh, often you'll find that organizations they're they're kind of the the uh, the leaders and the laggers when it comes to adopt adoption. Uh, so it's important to get the buy-in and the the support of of management to ensure that this kind of a transition goes smoothly. Uh, good. And think about your side. Was there a project leader on your side who was driving the whole thing, or was it a collaborative effort where there's a number of people involved in making sure it all happened? Um, driving the the project. So uh, initially, it was driven by somebody else in my team, but then once I've joined, I was I was one of the key uh, drivers of of the project. Okay, so you you were the leading the project and inherited it from somebody else. Yes. Oh, how, how does it um, feel stepping into the middle of another project? Uh, when you have a strong leader to uh, to hand it over to you, then uh, it it makes things a lot easier. Things are well organized, communication is well defined, so it definitely makes things a lot easier. Cool. Uh, how long did the project last? Was it quite a quick project for you, or was it you know stretched out over a number of years or months? Uh, overall, we've been working with them for a couple of years now. The uh, uh, the last project that I was on was for about uh, almost a year. Wow. Okay. So it's got a, a long project. Yep. And was it all deploying a single application, or were you rolling out a number of applications one after the other? Yeah. No. So as as I mentioned before, we have uh, there were there were a number of of solutions that were being deployed, including uh, SharePoint Online. Um, there was uh, Dynamics. 365, the Power Platform, those are some of the key uh, key components. And then uh, we also had some some Azure workloads that were being leveraged for for automation and for other areas. Right. So, so the technical architecture was on your side deciding which applications to use to solve the business problems, or did the client come along and say, "No, we need SharePoint for this or Dynamics for that"? 
No, the 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 client entrusted us to to let them know what we what uh, what would be best to solve their specific needs. That always helps if uh, if you've got that trust with your client. Yep. Thinking about those applications, are there any particular features or capabilities that you deployed that you're really proud of that made a massive difference to their organization? Um, one of the biggest challenges that they had is um, because they are a bilingual organization in Canada, everything that you do that is uh, either government or has a large number of users that are uh, accessing information, you must have uh, all the content in English and in French. Um, and so providing solutions that are bilingual, uh, while SharePoint uh, has some capabilities, uh, the Power Platform at the time didn't have any capabilities to do so. And so we've actually devised an architecture that made it very straightforward to actually build single apps that are bilingual and all the language would be defined kind of outside of the actual Power Apps. And so during load time, it would determine what language the user is working in and based on that, surface the correct information onto the apps. Okay, so as a church user, I can come in and say, I want to speak French, I don't know if you call it French-Canadian or Canadian-French or just French. Quebec. Quebec, yeah, Quebec Quebecois. Okay, yeah. so I select uh, Quebec as my language and then all the user interface elements are all updated to French or if I switch it to English, then it would all switch to English. Pretty much, yeah, and it would default. So if your browser was set to French, it would it would pick ah. up on that and it would say, or either your browser or your, uh, your Office 365 default language. If it was in French, it would pick up on that and say, okay, and now all we all the content is going to appear in French automatically, so you wouldn't even have to set it. That's pretty clever. I, I you'll have to forgive me, but I haven't done a multilingual deployment since I lived in Europe a few years ago. But is that a standard capability in the Power Platform today? It, it is not, and this is actually uh, an architecture that I devised, and I've, I've given a number of talks about it. Um, at different events, uh, you you may see it referred to as around the world in sixty minutes. Uh, where I, I talk about the architecture, give some examples, and the way that the architecture is built, it actually separates the, the, the content, which is the language, from the actual app. And so in this particular case, uh, all of the terms that were used on the apps were stored inside of SharePoint lists. And then if I wanted to add another language, I just, you know, I just basically add the new terms to the list and every item would have a number of uh, fields where one of them is the label itself, the value of it, and another one would be the language. So if I wanted to add another language, literally all I had to do was just add the labels, define the language for the labels in SharePoint, and just refresh the app and select the language. That's that's all uh -huh. I had to do. Really clever. And, and so that's a feature that you've managed to extract from that client project and then reuse that in other deployments? Yes. The, the architecture, the approach is something that was, was uh, initially developed for that client, but uh, the approach is very easily adaptable to other clients as well. So that's, it can be pretty tough to do that when you're working in a large consultancy because you, know, you need some spare time to, to take the learnings from a client project and extract them out, make them more generic perhaps, make them reusable. Uh, so that you can use them in other projects, or maybe even package them up and put them on App Source so other people can access those. How do you manage to find the time to do that? Is, is that something that Protivity does quite a lot of? I think a lot of it comes down to uh, self-discipline, right? So myself, there's no such thing as, okay, my work start, stops at 5 p.m. I mean, if I wanted to continue to uh, enhance my knowledge, 
I'm always reading something or trying out some new technologies or experimenting. Uh, so this is just one of those examples where um, I actually did research and came up with the approach first and then applied it to the client uh, and then basically enhanced the approach a bit more, wrote about it, uh, like I said, gave a few presentations. But the, the knowledge, the IP is, it's there. It's in my head and it's documented for others at Pertivity. So if they wanted to implement the same approach, they could. It wouldn't be taking anything from the client. It would just be re-implementing the same, uh, the same solution. Yeah, great. So I love that idea of taking your knowledge, writing about it, presenting it, because that also clarifies it, refines it, you improve it in your head and it, it becomes better rather than just being stuck in your head and being reused on a future project that you happen to be staffed on. So uh, I love that idea of sharing it. I think it makes the ideas stronger too. Absolutely. And actually what I find is often when uh, working on projects and you're faced with challenges, that is often the best material for uh, for new articles and new presentations, because I'm I'm not a uh, I'm a firm believer that if I want if I wanted to to produce some content to be shared, I don't want to produce uh, content that is that already has been produced before, because it it kind of dilutes the value of of what's already there. And uh, you know when you search for something, you realize okay, you're going to be hitting the same information over and over again. So sometimes when I I come across a certain challenge that hasn't really been solved before, that is typically when I will find myself writing about it or doing a video or, or giving a talk. Think about the approach that your team used for this project. You know, uh, it's no secret I'm a fan of an agile approach, taking things iteratively and incrementally. Was that your team's approach to this project or was it more of a plan based with the requirements specified up front? No, it was definitely a, a an agile approach. I mean, I've worked with many clients over the year, and and being both a, a, a project management professional and a certified uh, agile uh, scrum master, a lot of clients will tell you from the beginning they know exactly what they want, and they will document it and spend a lot of time writing documents. And I would say with confidence that a hundred percent of the time, what was built at the end, if we build it exactly based on the specs, it is not what the client wants. They always want to do some changes or enhancements. So that's why I'm very much uh, in favor of taking agile approaches where it makes sense. It doesn't always make sense, but in most cases it does in software. So thinking about requirement specifications, do you think they don't accurately reflect what was needed at the time? Or is it just that the requirements have changed during the course of the project? Or were the requirements always wrong from the start? Um, it's not so much that they are wrong. I think what happens is, especially when you're looking at these kind of transformational uh, solutions, users' knowledge is limited to uh, what they know. So when you tell people about SharePoint a lot of times and their their knowledge is limited about it, they're going to say, yeah, it's a, it's a cloud-based file share. It's a folder in the cloud. That's what they know SharePoint to be, and that, and that is essentially limiting them. And if you were to say, okay, let's talk about your metadata, let's talk about content types and other things, uh, you often kind of get a, a bit of a, a blank stare because they don't know what that is. They don't understand it. Right. And so when you're asking them, let's, let's talk about an information architecture, let's devise it, they don't really know what to say. They don't know how to think about it. And even though you spend a lot of time trying to explain it, while they may get it until they start using it and 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 pivoting on how they think about data they will not know exactly what it is that they want so i've just gone through this kind of exercise with another client we've spent a better part of about 3 to 4 months 
talking to every department, locking down the information architecture. And so far, now that we're doing the the uh, the deployment, uh, 100% of the departments we're going through are making changes to the information architecture before we actually migrate, because right. they're realizing that oh now now that they actually start seeing some of the data in a test environment, it's clicking in their head and like okay now I understand what I need to do. So I, I'm sure I asked a couple of agile practitioners this, but there's there's a phenomenon that says I can't express my requirements until I see something, and then I can tell you what I want or don't want or don't like about what I've just seen. I'm sure there's a name for it. I mean, sometimes you whether it's a proof of concept or just some some uh, uh, demo. I I I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. Uh, sometimes a lot of people are very visual, so if you try to conceptualize something to the users, they they may not get it. But when you actually put something right in front of them and say, hey, here's what what uh, what you're going to be doing. Here's how I want you to think about it. It makes a lot more sense. Um, you know, and I think, you know, people, humans are, are visual in nature. So, uh, for example, I don't know, uh, you, I believe you, you come from the dynamics background, not so much from SharePoint. Right. But if I try to explain metadata and content types and document libraries and security to somebody who doesn't understand the concepts and I try to talk in SharePoint terms, it can be quite overwhelming. Now, if I were to tell you, okay, imagine you're in your kitchen. Your kitchen is your SharePoint site. Now, I'm going to give you a coupon to your favorite supermarket. That coupon is a content type. It is something that you can see. It is something that you can hold in your hand and touch. It's the type of a document. And then you look at the information about it, the expiry date, the amount, the name of the store. Those are all metadata fields, right? Now take that coupon and stick it on your fridge. Your fridge is your document library, right? <laughs> right? Take another example. Now you want to have something that's going to, and, and the, the retention policy, right? When you talk about retention, the moment that the expiry hits on the coupon, you throw it away. It's useless. You don't need it yep. anymore. Now let's take another document. Let's take your, your, uh, um, your internet bill. You just received it in the mail. You, you're reading it, you know, opening up the letter, you're reading it in your, in your kitchen. Now, that's another content type. It's a, it's an invoice or it's a bill. It has different types of metadata, maybe the amount, the due date, you know, the, the service provider. And now you take that bill, you're not going to throw it away. You're going to put it in your drawer, which has a lock on it. So your kids are not going to play around with it. So now you've got security and the retention may be, you know what? You have to keep it until the end of the year. You submit it to your accountant for tax purposes. Then you throw it out. All of these concepts that are technical in nature, all of a sudden you're putting a very real-life scenario, like a spin on it of, of something that people can actually relate to. You know, the kitchen, the fridge, the coupon, the, the you know, the, the internet bill. They, and now they, go, they get an understanding of it. I love that. That's amazing. I love the analogies you, you paint to help bring those technical concepts to life. I think we could all do a lot more of that in our projects, whether we're painting pictures like that verbally or prototyping either with low fidelity paper prototypes or high fidelity wireframes. I think we, we owe it to our users to bring those concepts to life. I love those illustrations. Great. Um, thinking about some of the challenges that you had during the project, what were the tough parts that your your team faced or the client faced, and how did you manage to work around those? I would say change management and adoption is is usually one of the biggest challenges. As as much as you want, you'd love to spend a lot of time with every single user. That's not often achievable, and so trying to find the best possible medium to reach as many of your users and try to provide them with the necessary 
uh, support that they require, I find that is that is one of the biggest challenges. And in the specific case of the project that I was doing, reaching the people in the office was easy because they're there and we were there. This was before COVID. But then imagine the 8,000 or so users that are out in the field that can be in very, very uh, rural areas of Canada that you'd have to probably fly to or, or be on a train for a long time or, or a car. Um, that is not as, as easily achievable. Um, also the, the, if you look at the demographics, so often the people who would be, let's say, serving at a community of faith or, or assisting maybe uh, individuals who are less technically savvy right. uh, and older. And then I start getting into challenges where maybe the screen text is a little bit too small and they just don't know how to use the technology. They're still running on a, th- like no joke, they're running on a 300 baud modem. Oh. And so trying to say, well, you can't really run SharePoint when you have <laughs> this kind of a technology. So those were the main, uh, I would say the main challenges. It's, it's mostly just the, the uptake and the adoption. Okay. So what, what kind of learning and user adoption strategies do you do put in place to try and help these people adopt your technology? Um, offering different mediums, whether it's videos, uh, like little, like two minute videos on how to do something, documentation, uh, offering workshops and hands on, uh, hands on workshops, offering drop in sessions where they can do essentially like a few, a free Q and A on, on anything they want to discuss and just really offering a lot of those. And then also identifying champions in different regions or different offices. So if somebody has to ask a question, they can go to that champion first. Right. So you're not going to have a small team of support staff inundated with a lot of simple questions. So I love that idea of finding those local champions closer to the, where the users are, you know, maybe a peer of the users. So it's somebody who's in their community or in their location. How do you find those people and bring them along? Do you share some uh, project material with them earlier than the rest of the users get it? How do you get those people to trust you and, and devote their time to, to your project? You need to impart them early on. So you need to really spend more time training them and providing them a lot of tools. Uh, if, if they ask for some materials that, for example, may not be directly in scope, uh, extra documentation or extra training, I personally like to go the extra mile for these individuals because what I'll find is that by spending an hour or two extra with them, it can save me dozens of hours later on if they don't have what they need to support their teams. Okay. So that's a good uh, takeaway for us is to find those uh, early adopters, the champions in our user community, support them with a little bit of extra love, and that will hopefully make it smoother sailing for us and for all the other users later on in the project. Absolutely. Um, Any other critical success factors that you think made this project particularly special or successful? Anything that stands out? Is there a repeatable practice that you'll take into your other projects? Um, I would say that just the amount of change that this organization has undertaken in a, in a fairly short time, changing almost all of their systems in one shot. I think that was, that was quite exciting and as also nerve wracking at the same time. Right. I would say that if, if I could take one big learning from this particular client, uh, is when, when possible, try to maybe stagger some of the uh, the rollouts because again if you're if you're throwing a change at a user it's one thing but if you're telling them that everything that they do has to change now um, it can cause a lot of stress for individuals who are not dealing well with change and and we have seen some where they were just uh, a little bit flustered it right. was just they didn't know where to begin uh, every time they would look at anything it's like everything is new 
It's almost like starting a whole new job. Um, I was just chatting with a client yesterday about that exact same challenge. We're talking about the frequency of change. Should we plan for enhancements to our applications every couple of weeks? You know, maybe at the end of every sprint, we deploy a new increment and there's enhancements now in our user application. Or should we bundle them up and do it every quarter or half year or every every year? What what have you found works really well as a pace of change for users, particularly in an organization like United Church where your users you know, aren't full-time information workers sitting in front of a computer for you know, 30, 40 hours a week? Yeah, so when it comes to, especially when you're working in the cloud with Dynamics, with Microsoft 365, you often don't have the control to decide when changes are rolled out. Uh, right. You can you can uh, join the the first release program uh, for some users, so they can get uh, changes early on and they can see what's happening. Uh, but you really have to be ready, uh, communicate changes that are coming, and let users know that some changes they just they don't have a choice. They the changes will be coming. So often communicate through the internet, through through other mediums, as I would say, as frequently as necessary, uh, depending on the size of the change and the impact. And, and you should have some sort of a governance team in place who's on a regular basis reviewing what's coming down the pipe, understand the implications, determine if, if you need to provide extra training, if you need to change some of the processes, um, documentations, whatever it might be, be ready communicate early on, communicate frequently so that the change will be as, as smooth as possible. Yeah, uh, great advice. Thanks for that. So, Hanya, I really appreciate you sharing some of the learnings from your United Church project with us. If people want to keep in touch with you, follow you, and re- discover some more of your content, what's the best way for them to do that? So you can follow me on either Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. I'm not sure, Neil, if you're going to be sharing the, uh, the links anywhere. Yeah, the links will be in the show notes for everybody to see. So I'll put those in the show notes for this episode. Perfect. And also, uh, if there's any questions about, uh, you know, uh, if somebody needs some help on some projects or some of those examples I was talking about, um, I'll share my uh, my work email as well so they can reach me there. Good stuff. Thanks, Daniel. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks again, Daniel. It was great to hear how... He's designed a solution for multi-language Power Apps user interfaces, his agile approach to building business applications, and how he addresses change management and user adoption in his projects. Haniel is a well-known presenter on Power Platform topics. His presentation, Power Platform Governance Like a Rockstar, is a popular presentation at lots of community conferences. You can follow Haniel on Twitter at hkroitoru and on LinkedIn at hanielkroitoru or his blog at agile0365.com. Of course, I'll put links to all of Haniel's socials in the show notes at customary.com slash 025. Thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate you. I appreciate all the feedback I get, the reviews and the comments. Keep them coming. See you next time on the show. Until then, keep sprinting.